Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the politics and strategy behind Britain's Olympic success and the Labour Party's interesting new defence positions. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Janan Ganesh, the FT's political commentator, Sam Jones, our defence and security editor, Gideon Rackman, chief foreign affairs commentator, and two of the FT's Olympic experts, Roger Blitz and Peter Chapman. Thank you all for joining. We'll begin with the 2016 Olympics in Rio, where Britain has undoubtedly put in a terrific performance. In fact, it's our best ever overseas performance at the Olympics. But how we managed to do so well and get all these gold medals to the joy of people up and down these aisles? In his political column this week, Janan Ganesh argues that it was Sir John Major's introduction of the National Lottery that helped improve sports funding, which was then targeted very well to help us actually win. So Janan, Sir John doesn't come across as one of the sportiest Prime Ministers as Britain's ever had. But do you think Rio 2016 shows he's got the greatest sporting legacy? I think he'll be spluttering into his tea if he hears that introduction because (laughs) he was a pretty decent cricketer as a young guy, fairly enthusiastic football fan. And it doesn't surprise me at all that in 1994, he took the decision to set up the National Lottery knowing that the revenue would go into either sport or culture. And by 1996, the money was flowing into sport in particular. And what I think makes this such a happy Olympics is that whether you're on the left or on the right, you can claim vindication. So the left can look at these Olympic Games and say, it's only because we spent loads of money on infrastructure, coaching, direct income support for the athletes, that they've reached the level that they have over the past 20 years. Because remember, they did quite well in London four years ago as well. But the Conservatives can also turn around and say, well, it's not the sheer quantity of money on its own. That was necessary but not sufficient. What really made the difference was the ruthless elitism with which the money was directed. If you were a medalist or a plausible medalist, a plausible finalist, you got a lot of support. If you weren't, you were almost left to drift out of the system. So it wasn't like a grand egalitarian social democratic exercise. It was targeted funding, subject and performance measurements along the way. So I think there's something for everyone to take from these Olympics. And that's what makes it, I think, quite a benign experience for people in this country. We'll come on to exactly how that money was used. But Roger Blitz, it's amazing how far we've come. Because we were saying before we started recording in 1998 in Atlanta, we had one gold medal. And at the time of recording, we're now up to 22. So that's a big jump in that relatively short period. Yeah, and the key was 2005 when Britain were awarded the Games and that was clearly the massive stimulus and momentum to actually say, well, now we've got the Games, we actually have to start doing something about it. We actually started really winning medals again in Beijing in 2008. That's when public money started to be poured into it. 
And then we had this tremendous success at London. I think the fundamental thing is obviously success breeds success. Once you get over that huge initial investment, you can then actually have that strong competitive advantage. And you have seen not just the elite athletes, but obviously the coaching system has spread. I mean, you'll be aware of the cycling's marginal gains program. What's happened, I think, in the last four years is that spread all around the other relatively amateur sports has become much more professional, much more ruthless. Actually winning a silver medal and a bronze medal for some of these athletes is now actually not regarded as high enough currency. They are desperate to win gold. So the bar has kept on being pushed up. But fundamentally, what's responsible for that is success breeding success. And if there's one other politician who's key to this, it's actually Hugh Robertson, who was the UK sports minister, who crucially realised that at a critical juncture when they were deciding what to do about further Olympics after London, and realising that there was going to be this big spending review, which was going to cut against the whole budget of the uh, Department of Culture and Media Sport and UK Sport, he persuaded George Osborne to shift funding away from the exchequer towards the lottery. And actually, the shift went much more towards about three quarters of it happening to the lottery. And therefore, that continued the momentum. Peter Chapman, the role of the 2012 Olympics is quite big here, that it was such a national event. And I think everyone engaged it. And I feel as if the Rio 2016 has very much come off the back of that, that everyone's engaged in this because we had such a successful Olympics then. So that's very much, as Roger was saying, success breeding success. Absolutely. And the enthusiasm that people showed, the crowds of that time, you were seeing as well athletes winning in events that uh, we hadn't seen for quite some time. Mo Farah, for me, the highlight of the Games was his winning the 5,000 metres quite a long time ago when we had a spate of really sort of good athletes at that, that kind of event. And the yeah, the way the crowds got behind everybody, the way the athletes responded to the crowds, that built up such momentum that it's come into these games four years later. And then we established a kind of primacy in the likes of cycling. I've heard it described as the UK managing to pick the low-hanging fruit there because there are a lot of events which a lot of people hadn't concentrated on before and the UK found the way. Yeah, I think one of the telling and clever things that we did over the past 10 or 20 years was not to try and achieve greatness in areas where we'd never had much of a presence before. I mean, having said that, in gymnastics, Max Whitlock has picked up two gold medals. We previously had zero going into these Olympics. But in general, we consolidated areas of existing strength, cycling being the obvious one, rowing and bits of track and field spread out into other areas as well, but ultimately counted on those core areas to provide the bulk of our success. And the read across to politics I find quite fascinating because everyone's talking about industrial strategy, trying to encourage a manufacturing sector in this country. I think the lesson from the Olympics, if there is one in policy terms, is figure out what you're already good at and squeeze every last bit of achievement from that rather than try and build success on a completely barren field. The other thing is that there is still a huge divide between sport and the politicians who provide the funding for sport. Just carrying on the theme about conservative prime ministers, one who wasn't particularly interested in sport was David Cameron. And the anecdote goes that he was sitting next to Sebastian Coe on the night of Super Saturday at London 2012. And it was then that the penny dropped that Coe nudged him and said, this is what sport is really about and this is what you can achieve if you're prepared to actually fund it and support it. So there is, I think, still that continuing disconnect. I mean, 
this is great in terms of elite sport, but there's been no discussion during these games about the still relatively low levels of sports participation in this country, which is what London 2012 was meant to achieve. It didn't do that. It's failed to do that. Will that debate carry on after Rio? I suspect yes, but I suspect we'll come up with the same answers that we just cannot fund it. But isn't that the point, Peter? After every Olympics, pretty much every city that hosts it says the wider aims of it. It's not just about the games, it's about the infrastructure, it's about the psychological and the political effect. But ultimately, it often gets forgotten, especially when you look back into some of these successful and less successful games in the past. Yeah, we've had um, some very unsuccessful games, not just from the UK point of view, but the Montreal games back in 76, I think until recently, they were still paying off the bills. Yeah, people go on a lot about Olympian ideals. For me, picking up on Roger's point, we've seen over the last, what, 30 or 40 years, disappearance of green fields and things where people can get the fresh air and exercise they need. I'd like to see the Olympic success being reflected at grassroots level, uh, almost literally at grassroots level, where there is more room for participation. We worry about obesity, lack of exercise. Well, let's see the Olympic spirit continue over the next three or four years in actual active participation by people. That would, for me, say it's been a marvellous success. You've actually, I'm going to use that as a little slight detour away from the Olympics. There's a bit of news we had this week, Janan, which is that the government is falling back on its commitment to clamp down on very sugary foods. The sugar tax, which was the core part of these proposals last year, is remaining. But some of the other stuff has been watered down, you know, in this whole spirit of sport and healthiness. It took people by surprise a little bit. Yeah, I think it might be another example of Theresa May wanting to impose her personality on a government in the opening months, which is what every prime minister tries to do. And I remember one columnist recently saying that the way to predict what she'll do in government is just figure out what George Osborne's position was on something and then assume the opposite. And she's done it on a number of issues and the clampdown on obesity is one of them. I'm sort of torn on the issue in that instinctively the liberal in me says this is paternalism by the state. On the other hand, the weight of evidence as to the destructive effect of sugar has gone up in literally the last five years. And it's much more damaging than the sort of carbohydrate fixation we had until recently, even the fat fixation we had. Sugar is, seems to be the ultimate villain in terms of food. And so I'm sort of torn on the issue. And it's striking, I think, that she needed something to demonstrate her distinctiveness while nothing else is happening in politics and you can't do much over the summer. I don't think there'll be massive long-term impacts on our athletic potential as a nation just because enough people are interested in sport anyway. And really, I should stress, it's about your ability to convert people who are already quite good into elite athletes who are winning medals. I'm not sure it's about maximising the sheer pool of people participating. And this leads us, Roger, nicely onto my final point, which is, is this the best Britain is ever going to do? So again, at the time of recording, the worst place we're going to come is third. We might push into second. First is very, very unlikely. But do you think in future Olympics, this is the best Britain can do? Or could we do even better and get more medals? I think we will do better because I think other countries won't do as well. I think China's decline is partly because they had the great Beijing Games program to build in. And I don't think they quite see that kind of supremacy on the sporting arena as important as they did back then. Clearly, America is going to carry on being the supreme Olympic nation simply because of the number who participate at a very, very professional level. 
But then after that, who else do you see actually having that kind of infrastructure that London 2012 provided to Britain? Can you see anyone in Europe doing it? Can you see Japan, the next host of the Games, having that that push? No, I actually see Britain continuing to do better, partly through its own continual programme, which they've now got very, very well locked down, but also because I think it's going to be harder for other nations to catch up. And finally, Peter, do you think that this is the right metric? How many medals you get, how many gold medals you get? Is that ultimately for you what the Olympics is about? Strangely enough, I think it's slightly undervaluing the gold medal at the moment. I'm very glad that people are winning the gold medals they did, but I almost pined for those days when I was studying, shall we say, the form during the Tokyo Olympics, and we got four gold medals and I knew the name of everybody. Now there's no chance we know the name of these people. I start to feel... On a moral level, I wonder if we should be beating China. You know, 1.2 billion people. Should we be diverting so much of our resources in that direction? Should we really want to come any higher than third? West Germany has far more people than us anyway. So I start to worry at that point. I think the psychic effects on the nation of doing as well as we do are probably impossible to quantify and capture in an economic model. I remember a friend of mine who was in the Treasury in 2005 when we won the Olympics and the news came through. There was booing inside the Treasury, because all they could think of, understandably, was the responsibility to taxpayers. There are other claims on our resources, as Peter says. It just seemed like an unjustifiable expense. And it's simply because economics has no way of capturing the feel-good vibe, the knock-on consequences for participation, and all the ancillary benefits that come from an Olympics. And anyone who was in London during August of 2012 will know what I'm talking about. People, complete strangers talking to each other on the tube, uh, I remember Tessa Jow saying that the boom in volunteering spread into other areas. So it wasn't just the people in purple T-shirts during the Olympics. They kept on volunteering in other ways beyond the Olympics. That kind of stuff, I think, the guys at the Treasury can't quantify. And that's why I'm happy for the country to throw as much money as it can behind sport. The Labour Party leadership race rumbled on this week with Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith focusing on foreign affairs. Mr Smith, who's challenging for leadership, suggested that Britain should strive to get around the table with ISIS, that murderous death cult. Mr Corbyn, the incumbent leader, has repeatedly refused to say Britain would maintain its commitments to NATO for a mutual defence policy. Overall, it signalled a somewhat change in direction. So, Gideon Rackman, I'll begin with you on Owen Smith's comment about ISIS. Now... If you're a true good socialist, you tend to believe most of the world's problems can be solved by talking them out as opposed to pointing guns at each other. And this is something Jeremy Corbyn has said in the past. But this went down very badly and he was even attacked by Mr Corbyn for saying it. It just sounds totally ludicrous. Well, it's only slightly through the looking glass because, as you say, in the past, it's Mr Corbyn who's been accused of being ludicrously willing to indulge terrorists and to talk to them. And it's the Labour right that have said this is a very bad idea. That said, there is in the kind of quasi-academic policy world a theory that all struggles with terrorists eventually end up with you talking to them. In fact, Jonathan Powell, Blair's former chief of staff, has written a book saying exactly that. And when challenged, would you even extend this to ISIS with his back against the wall, said, "Uh, yeah, I would. But I agree that at the moment it seems crazy, implausible. These are not people who have the kind of political goals that even the IRA had that you could ultimately talk to them about. Somebody joked that maybe the best reason for getting around the table with ISIS would be to then quietly leave the room and call in a drone strike and I think that that kind of sums up the situation in the sense that people really don't see them as partners at the moment. 
Because Sam Jones Gideon said in academic circles there is this thought about how you could try and solve the situation, but in the actual real world, is there anyone out there who um, has views like this? Because obviously these two people are auditioning to be opposition leader, which is in itself an audition to be prime minister. So you do have to take these things seriously, but is there anyone out there who has this kind of view? Certainly no one I've ever spoken to or heard from. It's completely logical on one sense, as Gideon said, that you might end up negotiating with a terror organisation and certainly that can be applied to some terror organisations with more limited uh, political goals. I don't think ISIS is that organisation. I can sort of see where Owen Smith was going and maybe farther down the line, let's say in years to come, if the Syria situation has improved to any degree, there might not be negotiations and various people on the ground will need to sit down around a table and discuss things. The problem is if ISIS was going to be one of those people it would be so far removed from being the organisation it is currently that you wouldn't really be sensible to be drawing the comparison anyway. I mean, ISIS basically uh, is a millenarian uh, organisation that believes in a global caliphate. There is no negotiation with that. These are people that blow themselves up in suicide bombings. Uh, that alone makes them very different from the IRA, for example, or other European terrorist organisations we've known before. Yeah, I mean, I basically agree with that. Although, for the sake of argument, one could say that Al-Qaeda, for example, after 9-11, everybody would have thought completely unthinkable that you could ever speak to al-Qaeda and indeed Osama bin Laden was subsequently wiped out in an American raid. But that said, if you look at the Syrian peace negotiations, there is a, a live debate about, well, where do you draw the line? And maybe some kind of al-Qaeda affiliate groups are part of the opposition that will have to be part of the settlement. So these things can change. But at the moment, it's very hard to see ISIS as part of any dialogue. It's particularly striking this week when Syria's been in the news so much with the bombings, the dreadful situation in Aleppo as well. There is certainly an urge for something to happen. But of course, it does raise the question, if Mr. Smith did win the leadership, what would Labour's defence policy be? Would it be to play some kind of active role as the Conservatives have in Syria or not? Yeah, I mean, I think that Owen Smith probably already regrets saying what he said and... As you say, he's auditioning to be leader and then that's an audition to be prime minister. But he would be very, very far from the levers of power, even as leader of the Labour Party. So what he said as a kind of stray comment in a leadership contest, I think, would be defined away in the course of time. I mean, I think the fact is that policy in Syria is a mess. Western policy is a mess. Britain plays a peripheral role anyway. So what actually happens is going to depend on much bigger players in the UK. What's happening between Russia and Turkey matters a lot. What's happening between Russia and the US, the role of the Saudis, and so on. It is true the British are involved in military operations, but let's not kid ourselves, we're not determinative forces there. Well, for something a bit closer to home, Sam has been Mr Corbyn's comments on NATO this week. So in a hustings event on Thursday, he was asked, would he, if Russia invaded a NATO country, and Article 5, which is this uh, mutual defence thing you explained, to us in a moment, was triggered, would he get involved? And he refused to answer that question and put aside Mr Corbyn's feelings towards Russia. It took a lot of people quite back, people in Labour and outside. Yes, and I think it's important to note that as far as I'm concerned, whereas the Owen Smith remark was sort of triggered a debate of preposterous abstraction. It's more theoretical. Yes, this is a much more concrete and problematical issue, certainly for NATO, who are already reeling from the remarks of Donald Trump in the US. And so just to be clear, uh, Article 5 is the Collective Defence Clause, which 
states that if one NATO member is attacked, then all of the other members have a duty to spring to their defence. Whilst that is enshrined in the NATO treaty, it's not a guaranteed and automatic reaction. The NATO North Atlantic Council has to vote on it, and there has to be unanimity on that council about the course of action to take next. So Mr Corbyn saying that he wouldn't support a NATO state, it could effectively mean that Article 5 wouldn't be triggered, and therefore this is a big problem. Now, if you had a smaller NATO state, the leadership candidate in one of their elections saying something like this, that might not be quite such an issue because, of course, there's a pressure in the room that is exerted on different NATO members collectively. But the UK is NATO's most powerful defence power in Europe and the largest defence budget in Europe, the US's strongest ally in Europe. It's really quite a big deal for a potential leader of the country to be saying that he wouldn't be willing to defend other members of the alliance. Article 5, Gideon, has only ever been activated once, which was the day after um, the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And it's become an interesting theoretical question. So Donald Trump was this, asked this, as Sam said, if a European ally was attacked and activated Article 5, would the US defend? And he sort of said, well, yes, but only if they pay their way, which is not quite how NATO works. So you've got these two challenges to the whole basis of NATO, which some argue has provided a lot of stability for 60 plus years. Yeah. And I think what uh, the Corbyn and the Trump remarks reflect is not just the weirdness of these two politicians, but also some real developments in the world out there, which is that this is a very nervous time in Europe, and it's a nervous time for NATO because of Russia's annexation of Crimea. The fear that the relatively recent NATO members, they joined after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Baltic states, former parts of the Soviet Union, might be in the crosshairs of Vladimir Putin. What happens if actually the Russians, the starkest thing would be an invasion? And then I think NATO probably would be bound to react. But what if there was a kind of confusing situation of the sort that was generated in Ukraine? How would NATO react? And I think that in a way, the reason that Corbyn's remarks are quite dangerous is precisely because they're not totally off the wall. They do reflect a real debate. I have heard former Tory defence ministers say, we have this commitment to defend the Baltic states, and then semi-jokingly, how do we get out of it? Because people are worried that Britain and the rest of NATO might end up being dragged into a war. The thing is that it's generally regarded as quite bad form to even say that in private, but a very bad idea to say it in public, because the more you say it, the less likely it is that the Article 5 commitment will serve as the deterrent that it's meant to be, because the Russians might be tempted to test it. And I think even the sort of saying it in public thing has a real effect on NATO's security because there is already this nervousness among the Eastern European members of the alliance about the commitments of their partners. There's a worry that because that collective defence clause requires unanimity, that in the event of a sort of hybrid scenario where Russia just sort of prods at the edges, needles Estonia or Latvia or somewhere like that, that the Italians perhaps or the Greeks might say, well, you know, it's not our problem. And for the UK now to be saying that too, that really is difficult. The UK so far, has trodden a much stronger line and I think we're about to send well up to 800 or so troops to the Baltics to be more or less permanently positioned there. So this comment by Mr Corbyn also raises questions for the armed forces about his commitment to their security, their safety. But I think you know there's a more immediate issue there too. Gideon, obviously Mr Corbyn is he's certainly anti-defence. You know, I remember during one of the Labour leadership hustings last summer, he was asked, do you think the Labour Party spent too much on anything? And of course Liz Kendall and all the others said, of course 
course they hadn't. And Mr. Corbyn said, oh, no, they didn't spend enough on everything except defence. And that's basically his line of view. He's mooted leaving NATO in the past. He's mooted not renewing Trident or keeping the submarines without nuclear warheads. And I think there is a general sense that if he was in government, he would want to reduce Britain's defence commitments. And that would be withdrawing from the world stage. Well, I mean, I think that, sure, we know his record and he is from that oppositional wing of the Labour Party, which has always regarded the United States as at least as much of a problem to the world as Russia, and that has always been deeply opposed to nuclear weapons, the whole gamut of things. It's a very clear agenda. Shared by some, what's new is that this is now a man who's actually leading one of Britain's two main political parties. And just very briefly, finally, the last thing, of course, is his stances and comments on the IRA in the past are arguably far more powerful because to most British voters, NATO is quite an abstract concept, as is ISIS, apart from what they see on TV and in the newspapers. But the IRA is still very fresh and voters' minds, and I think the Conservatives will certainly try to use his past positions and statements and inviting Jerry Adams to the House of Commons against him. Sure. And, uh, you know, his key ally, John McDonnell, was even more strongly supportive of the IRA. I think you can actually use the word supportive, has suggested that the members of the IRA should have been honoured for what they did in the past. And I think that that stuff is electoral poison for Labour, because maybe uh, for younger voters, they won't actually really remember living through the bombs in London and Manchester and elsewhere. But I think there are enough people who are old like me who do remember and who find it quite remarkable. For me, I just want to return to the point of deterrence as well, where there's been a long-running debate and a controversy in the UK about something like Trident nuclear deterrence that I think chimes with a lot of people in the country that why do we spend so much money on something that's going to kill so many millions of people if it's ever used? But actually, the more fundamental thing which is emerging now and can be seen with Corbyn is that it's not just nuclear deterrence he doesn't agree with. It's deterrence full stop as a military doctrine. I don't think Mr Corbyn believes that you can use force or the threat of force, rather, to make things better in the world. And I think that is a real big challenge to the entire Western security order. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign policy commentator. Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts, and you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.